8. And specifically today, we will be in verses 26 through 40. We spent our time last week going through the first portion of this chapter, another scene in which a large number of people were converted to the faith, receiving the good news attested to by signs and wonders and Jesus from heaven through the ministry of his people and the power of his spirit shows that he is active in bringing people to restoration. Acts chapter 8 verses 26 through 40 are the same in some sense for we find the conversion of a wandering soul But yet, it is much more personal. It is a one-on-one encounter. And so, as we approach this passage today, it is perhaps a bit more in our wheelhouse, so to speak. It's a bit more of our normal expectation, our more normal experience that, by and large, we're not going to public places and performing healings and speaking in tongues and seeing droves of people converted. Though if God wants to do that, I should add, He can do that, and we would love to see that again. But by and large, in our experience, He sends us to one or two people at a time and gives us the opportunity in His providence and by the power of His Spirit to speak the good news of Jesus that they might believe embrace Him, and be transformed. So this passage really relates to the way that we normally encounter people and the way that we are called to encounter people and to explain to them and proclaim to them the good news of Jesus. So we find once again that Jesus and His people are on mission. So let's read together and find what God's Spirit has for us today. This is the Word of the Lord. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, (coughs) excuse me, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, And like a lamb before its shear is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture... He told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, 
Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. And God bless to us the reading of his word. Just for the sake of a bit of context, last week in verses 4 through 8, we found that in the wise and kind providence of our Lord, even the most apparent tragedy is meant for good. Philip, like most of the church in Jerusalem, was scattered because of the persecution that arose after Stephen's stoning. The apostles, oddly, perhaps, stayed behind in Jerusalem, perhaps hidden out a bit, poring over ancient texts, still discerning how they pointed to Jesus. But by and large, those that they had taught up to this point scattered, including Philip, and went out into the region abroad. Philip specifically went into Samaria, a land, a people that was by and large despised by Philip's people, the Jews. They were seen as ethnic half-breeds, religious heretics. They were not adored at all, to put it lightly. Yet, Philip in his heart saw that the gospel overcame these ethnic and religious divisions and believed that the gospel was for all peoples. The apostles had taught him that, even if they didn't fully understand that. And because he was indwelt by the Spirit and being changed by the Spirit, his hatred, his racial and ethnic and religious prejudices were overcome, and he spoke the gospel to these people. So God used the persecution that came after the murder of Stephen, which was evil, for good, as he always does. And as we saw in verses 9 through 25, the Holy Spirit is God's free gift to his renewed people and will lead to the restoration of genuine worship. Peter and John come down as representatives of the apostles to see what has been done in Samaria, to give their approval to it, and to show that restoration is for all peoples everywhere, just as Jesus commanded them to take the gospel not just to Jerusalem and Judea, where it was more comfortable, their kin, so to speak, but to places where they were uncomfortable, with people with whom they were uncomfortable And eventually, as we will find, the gospel will go to the uttermost parts of the world. And we see that now to a degree in Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 40. The gospel has taken root among God's covenant people. And that kind of makes sense, for Jesus was the expected fulfillment of all of God's gracious prophetic promises. And though by and large the Jewish people missed this, there was a relatively large swath of people, thousands we have found in the first eight chapters of Acts, who embraced the good news of Jesus, that He was God's promised Redeemer. We saw last week that the gospel made it to people who were despised. And now the gospel is going to go even further than that. The gospel is going to go to a person who probably in some way was an adherent of Judaism, 
but in some ways could not be a full Jew because he was a eunuch. In the Mosaic Law, in the book of Deuteronomy, we find that a eunuch, either literally or metaphorically, literally, perhaps he had been castrated, eunuchs in this day and age, would often take care of harems of women for rulers. Often they took care of the money. They were devoted to their ruler. In this case, he served a queen, and he was her treasurer. But eunuchs in Old Testament law were not allowed to be full adherents of Judaism. They were seen as deficient. And because he was an Ethiopian, and that land probably did not correspond perfectly to modern-day Ethiopia, he was probably what we would call a Nubian, which would have been in sort of central Sudan that extended up into southern Egypt. So not far from modern-day Ethiopia, but a bit west of that. Because he was a Gentile and because he was a eunuch, and perhaps even because of his skin tone, he would have been a black man, perhaps quite black, perhaps like my two boys that you see running around this place. He would have been excluded from full inclusion in the Jewish faith. There was a court that surrounded the Jewish temple in Jerusalem called the Court of the Gentiles. And if you were a Gentile that adhered to the Jewish faith, that was as far as you could go. You could not go further into the concentric circles toward the bullseye, so to speak, of the temple. You were excluded from that. You had to live on the periphery, so to speak, of God's covenant promises. This man had things in his ethnicity and in his background, and in his personal choices that kept him, seemingly, from full access to God. He had come up to Jerusalem, both going northward and even by elevation, to worship God, but he, he couldn't get too close. So, in a sense, he might be what we would call in modern terms a seeker one who had cravings for fulfillment, one who recognized that there was deficiency in himself. Somehow he had been exposed to the Jewish faith. It's possible that even through Old Testament expansion of covenant promises that the gospel had gotten down into Central Africa or Eastern Africa, the Horn of Africa. Somehow he had been exposed to this, perhaps through trade routes and perhaps through being an emissary of his queen. But he went to Jerusalem with this, with this craving, this, this recognition that there was something deficient in him, perhaps even recognizing that he was a great sinner in need of forgiveness. And as he would have read the Old Testament, in this case we know he had a copy of it. This indicates that he would have been a wealthy person. As he had access to the Old Testament in his own possession, he would have read of the sin of God's image bearers and the penalty for such sin. But in the Jewish faith, he saw that there was perhaps hope for him, hope that he could be forgiven. But as he went into the temple courts and could only go so far, the deepest needs of his heart were not satisfied. 
And so he gets back in his chariot and begins his five-month journey. Think of that. Like when we have to go more than 30 minutes, we say, ah, I'll just call you, right? Like we don't want to drive further than that. So for five months, he had traveled to Jerusalem to satisfy the cravings of his heart, and they had not been fully met. And we know that because as he's traveling back home in his chariot, he stops to read his scroll to find hope. And yet he doesn't know where to find it, but he's super curious. And in this account of the expansion of the gospel of Jesus to all peoples everywhere, even to an Eastern or Central African diaspora Jew who sort of held on to the Jewish faith looking for hope, we find that he really is not the true seeker. Jesus is the true seeker. And he sends by the inspiration of an angel and his Holy Spirit one of his followers who again had been scattered due to the murder of one of Jesus' faithful followers to go after him. So what do we find in this story? We find a seeker being sought by the one true seeker and the deepest cravings of his heart fulfilled. If you were reading along and you have a King James or an even new King James Bible in front of you, you may have found that we skipped a verse. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but if you are using one of those two translations, I don't want you to be confused. All of our Bibles contain this first verse, verse 36. As they went on their way, they came unto a certain water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water, what doth hinder me to be baptized? So in a little bit more modern English, you have that, most of you, in your modern translations. But most of you who are not using a New King James or King James do not have the second verse, verse 37. You'll see that it's even skipped in your text, though perhaps included in the footnote. King James and the New King James include, And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Most modern scholars pretty much universally agree that this was not original in the text, which is why most of our modern translations, it is not included. It could have been added by a scribe to show the traditional response of the eunuch to the gospel that all of us must make. We must believe in our hearts, not just intellectually, but embrace the gospel. So it is likely that verse 37 was not original in the text, though it's true in the sense that we all must respond to the gospel in this way. This is not what the sermon is about, but I don't want you to be confused if you're reading along. Let's move on. I'm going to put a map behind me. You can see down in the southwestern portion of this map, and if you're not good at that, that would be, I'm going to turn around, this would be my left bottom, okay? So if you're not good at southwest and northeast, Gaza is down there in the southwestern portion of Jerusalem. You sometimes hear that terminology still today, the Gaza Strip. It's a Palestinian territory that is bordered by both Egypt and Israel. It's a land of great contention even to this day. But back in that day, it was part of Israel. And after Philip takes the gospel to Samaria, he and Peter and John evangelize other towns in Samaria and go back to Jerusalem. While Philip is in Jerusalem, an angel appears to him and says, you need to go south toward Gaza. And so that's what he does. We will not come back to this map later, but we find that 
after Philip evangelizes the Ethiopian eunuch, he will go northern toward Azotus, also called Ashdod, and then up to Caesarea. So you see that that coastline, according to Luke here in Acts chapter 8, gets evangelized up and down in these various towns. The first thing we find today in the text is that we must be sensitive to and rely upon the Spirit in order that we might testify to the good news of Jesus. We must be sensitive to and rely upon the Spirit in order that we might testify to the good news of Jesus. The apostles had set the pace for this. Jesus had commanded the apostles that they were not to leave Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit's power came upon them. That's Acts chapter 1. And that happens in Acts chapter 2. After the conversion of many thousands in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, perhaps including Philip, the gospel is embraced by many and they attend to the teaching of the apostles. The apostles, through their example and through their teaching, teach their followers, including a person like Philip, to rely upon and be sensitive to the Spirit. And that's exactly what Philip is doing here in this case. Philip could have hid out. He could have found a seemingly safe place to go hide out and not incur the wrath of the surrounding peoples, whether Jews or Samaritans. That's not what Philip does. Philip was overcome by the reconciliation and restoration that he'd experienced by Jesus. And because of the command of Jesus and the teaching of the apostles, he continues what they had done in taking the gospel to all that he could. Philip lived in sensitivity to the Spirit. In some ways, that helps us understand what Paul is saying in his letter to the Galatian church when he calls his followers to walk in the Spirit. That is a little bit ambiguous. In some ways, we wish that there was a bit of a parenthesis that the apostle would provide to say, what I mean by that is this. But as we read the letters of the New Testament and even look now back into Acts and see how God's people lived, perhaps we get the indication that walking in the Spirit involves sensitivity to the Spirit. In this case, we know that the Spirit actually speaks to Philip in verse 29. By and large, probably we have not heard some sort of audible or even internal inaudible voice in our head of the Spirit, but the Spirit speaks to us through the Word. Philip did not have a completed canon, including the New Testament. Those letters had not yet been written. We do. So the Spirit does still speak to us as we live sensitively to Him, reading the Word and then talking back to Him. So in a sense, we can have a very real, intimate, organic, natural, genuine dialogue with the Spirit of God, not completely unlike how Philip did, but we do it perhaps in a bit of a different way, living sensitively to Him. How do we do that? We spend time in the Word. We live under its sway, meditating upon its words and its teaching and its thrust. And then we talk back to the Spirit. Philip lived sensitively to the Spirit. He walked in the Spirit. He was not dull to the Spirit. He was not insensitive to the Spirit. He was, he was ready. He was poised. He was postured. 
And we must learn to do this as well. This is one of the reasons that we preach verse by verse through the books of the Bible. Here's what I mean by that. We have a tendency, all of us, to seek to live independently from God. I have told you this quote before, but not in a while. It has been said that in the beginning, God created man in His image. And ever since, here's the twist, ever since, man has been returning the favor, seeking to mold God after our own image, something that we are comfortable with, a deity of our own making. We can treat the Bible like that too, piecemealing it, coming to it in the way that we want, trying to make it say what we want. But whenever we come to the entirety of the Scriptures, letting them speak for themselves with authority in their context, both in what they originally meant to the audience to which they were sent and what they mean to us today, we are submitting naturally to the Spirit of God through the Word of God under the authority of God, the Scriptures. And in so doing, we are saying that we are not God and He is, and that we want to live for His glory. We want to know Him and treasure Him. We want to speak of Him and represent Him. Philip is an example to us of a person who lived under the sway of the leadership and power of the Spirit, and we do that together today. And so, I want to commend you. I want to say that that I and the other elders are so proud of you and so thankful for you that you come and you listen to the Word week by week, verse by verse, because you want to live under the authority of God and under the sway and influence of His Spirit. So we can do the same thing Philip did. So in a sense today, the church, this church, is, is gathered together, hearing the voice of the Spirit through the Word of God and a little bit, we are going to scatter. And then we can, too, be like Philip, who will take the influence of the Spirit as he testifies to the good news of Jesus and spread the gospel to those who need it. So as we live sensitively to the Spirit and rely upon His power, we are enabled to testify to the good news of Jesus. So this man, this Ethiopian eunuch, had a scroll. These ancient scrolls were very costly indicates that he was not only a treasurer for Candace, this was likely a hereditary title, it wasn't necessarily her given first name, that he himself had been enriched. So he had his own scroll. It might have been about a foot tall, and if it was the entirety of the prophecy of Isaiah, it could have been up to 145 feet long. So whenever it was put together, there would have been two big round, tubular-like things on the end, and then you would unroll it little by little and read the whole thing. Well, he would have been toward the end here in chapter 53. And as he was reading it, perhaps in Hebrew or Aramaic, more likely in Greek, he wondered what he was reading. But he was intrigued by this passage, a passage which indicates that there was a figure who would like a sheep slaughtered, who allowed himself, according to verse 32, to be slaughtered. And he was treated unjustly, verse 33. Nate read this passage to us earlier, but let's turn back there, Isaiah 53. This is one of the clearest passages in the entirety of the Old Testament, which points to the coming of the Messiah, who would not come in powerful glory, 
but would come in the glory of suffering, atoning for the sins of his people. Let's look in verse 4 of Isaiah 53. Surely he, the servant of God, would bear our griefs and carry our sorrows. Verse 5, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. Verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And out of the anguish of his soul, verse 11, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. So it is as though... The Ethiopian eunuch sees this guy coming to him. This chariot could have been like a little flatbed trailer. Because he was wealthy, it might have been more like a a wagon of some sort. He invites Philip to come up and sit with him in his wagon. It would have been a hot part of the day. Perhaps there was a canopy over it. And he says to him, I don't understand this text. When Philip hears the text that he is reading... He thinks to himself, perhaps, you just threw me a softball. This is not a hard one to explain Jesus to you. This one clearly shows that Jesus is the answer to all of God's prophetic promises for redemption. So then he doesn't just read verses 7 through 9, which talk about Jesus being like a lamb led to slaughter and being treated unjustly. He, He fills out the rest of the chapter. And he keys in on the fact, I'm sure, that Jesus came to be a substitute. A substitute for sinners. Who takes upon himself the sins of the world, that the wrath of God might be appeased. But he not only takes upon himself the sins of the world, he offers to those who will trust him his righteousness. And his righteousness can be accounted to them, as verse 11 of Isaiah 53 says, credited to them. And herein we find, as Paul talks about in Romans chapters 3 and 4, that justification, being declared not guilty, or being declared righteous, is not something that we can earn, but something that is granted to us, credited to us, when we believe and trust in Jesus. And then I believe that he would have gone further on. In Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 9 through 10, there is a promise given to eunuchs and even to those from the land of Ethiopia, oftentimes known as Cush. In Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 9 through 10, the prophet says, For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, this would have been the rivers of the Nile, with my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. This was a prophecy now fulfilled because the gospel gets to a guy from that region. Look with me in Isaiah 56. It is likely that Philip would have kept unrolling that long scroll. Then come to Isaiah 56, verses 3 through 8. 
Notice how this applies to this Ethiopian eunuch. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. In other words, I can't have offspring. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not prevent it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain. And make them joyful in my house of prayer. Remember, this eunuch would not have been able to go to the holy mountain into its innermost circles. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. The already gathered are those we see in Acts chapters 1 through 7. Who are the others that will come in? People like the Samaritans. People like this Ethiopian eunuch. People from other lands. People who have things that are true in their ethnicity or even in their religious choices that keep them from access to God. Remember when Jesus cried his last words and gave up his spirit The veil that separated the holy place from the holiest place was torn in two, showing that the Jews now had access to God. And what is now happening for this Ethiopian eunuch? He has access to God. This Gentile eunuch from Africa represents all peoples everywhere. Everyone who will trust Jesus, who made an offering for their sin, whose righteousness can be credited to them if they believe they can come in. No one will be kept out if they will trust Jesus. John chapter 16, turn it there with me, please. We referenced this chapter last week in reference to the Spirit and His work, but I want to turn there again because I want us to learn this lesson. As I said to you last week, we are going to pause now and not go into Acts chapter 9. There's a bit of a transition that's going to happen in Acts chapter 9 as the gospel will expand beyond Israel, really, to the uttermost parts of the world through the ministry of Paul. We're going to take a brief break and do a brief series on the person and work of the Holy Spirit. That'll begin next week. But in anticipation of that, we find in John chapter 16, verses 4 through 15, that Jesus promises that He will send the Comforter, His Spirit, to enable and empower the gospel to go forward through the apostles. Look with me in verse 4 once again, the second half of verse 4. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, verse 7, I tell you the truth. And these are interesting words from Jesus. It is to your advantage that I go away. Now they're thinking to themselves, no way. But let's go on. For if I do not go away... The Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. And you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Now, verse 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. 
When the Spirit of truth comes, this helper, this one distinct from Jesus, distinct from the Father, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is not only a very important passage which declares to us the shape of the Trinity, but it also declares to us who the Spirit is and what he will do. Jesus will go away and send the Helper, and it's good that he does because he will be distributed to all who trust Jesus and will not only minister to us, reminding us all that Jesus has said, but minister through us. For as we speak the good news of Jesus, the Spirit will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment, thereby exposing their sin and their need for a Savior and showing that Jesus is their only hope. And that's exactly what you see going on in Acts chapter 8. Philip is living in sensitivity to the Helper, to the Comforter, to the Spirit, And when he has opportunity to proclaim the gospel to an unlikely person, he does it. And then God enables him through a softball text to make sure that this person understands that all the prophetic promises of Israel that they had been anticipating, and as this one who had become a a God-fear, one who hung on to the periphery of the Jewish faith, he sees that Jesus is the answer. And he went to Jerusalem seeking, and he didn't find the answers for the cravings of his soul. And he goes away on his five-month journey back home, but God sends one after him to answer the cravings and desires of his heart. What do we learn from this? Luke chapter 12, verses 11 through 12. Jesus told the apostles, when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit would teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. The reason I bring this text up, and we did this a couple of weeks ago in Acts chapter 7, but I want to remind us of this, is that you don't have to be worried when you're evangelizing. Here's what I mean. I think a lot of people are really scared to evangelize because they're afraid that they won't get a softball. And by the way, if you're not a sports person, you don't understand my analogy. Uh, Typically, in in most softball contexts, a ball is thrown underhand with an arc on it, and it's really easy to hit because it's big. That's a softball. It's easy to hit. Uh, To to further the analogy, a a pitch in baseball that's really hard to hit is like a 92-mile-per-hour slider off the plate. Like Most major leaguers can't even hit that. If you can, you're a millionaire. We are afraid that we're going to get a 92-mile-per-hour slider off the edge of the plate, and there's no way we can swing and hit it, and we'll look foolish. The truth of the matter is we have to depend upon the Spirit no matter who we are encountering, no matter where that person is coming from or, or what they are experiencing, that the Spirit will help us. Let me say it this way. There are no accidents in the kingdom of God. If you're a child of God, if, if you belong to His kingdom, There are no accidents at any moment of your life. That means that whoever you encounter, whether they are a religious skeptic or whether they are ignorant of Christianity altogether, there are no accidents, and God is taking you to that person for that reason, which means that you can depend upon Him in the moment to help you know what to say. But that does not mean that you shouldn't prepare. And herein lies the tension. So, so first of all, there's no accidents. God will take you to whom He wants to take you and will give you what 
you should say in the moment, but you should prepare. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus, after his resurrection, encounters two people on the road to Emmaus. They're very sad because their Messiah has died. They don't know that the resurrection has taken place. It's been hinted at, but, but they're very skeptical. They're not sure what to believe. And so Jesus appears to them, veils his presence, and they don't know it's Jesus right away. And I think with love, he says these words, Oh, foolish ones, if you can say that with love, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken, like Isaiah. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament, and all the prophets, Isaiah, Zephaniah, and others, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, I don't think that means that he took the 39 books of the Old Testament, quoted them, and showed them everything that he had said. That would have taken too long. But he showed them the redemptive trajectory, the thread concerning himself that ran throughout. Which means that as we read the Old Testament, and yes, the entirety of the scriptures, we must not piecemeal them, see them as separate stories about separate subjects, but see one central theme. The Bible contains a lot of truth, but it has one big story. And that is that the God made the world for His glory, knowing full well it would fall into sin. But before He even made it, in covenant with the Son and the Spirit, they promised one another that one day they would redeem some of these fallen image bearers. And one day Jesus finally came and fulfilled all those promises. And even to this day, two millennia later, if we will trust Him, the central story of the Bible, the central figure of the story, He will take away our punishment and grant us His righteousness. This is the good news. The Bible is about the good news of Jesus. Philip had learned from the apostles what the Bible was all about. It must have been very exciting for a Jewish person in the first century who had learned the Bible pretty well, to sit at the feet of the apostles under the inspiration of the Spirit and see things they had never seen. These two disciples on the road to Emmaus after Jesus left them said that when this figure spoke to them, which they finally realized was Jesus, they say that their heart burned when he spoke with them. That's how we should be as we hear the word. As we study the Word, our hearts should burn because we see the central figure of the Scripture. God's promise to us rescues us from God's justifiable wrath and grants us His promises and brings us back into His family. So as we saw in Luke 12, we must must rely upon the Spirit when we encounter those that need the good news and we must prepare as well so that we have something to say. 1 Peter 3, Peter famously says, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Rely upon the Spirit and prepare. We won't take time to turn here today, but this is a good cross-reference for you to consider. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 11-21 through 21, in this passage, the Apostle Paul tells us that we're ambassadors. What does an ambassador do? He represents his sovereign. He speaks on behalf of his government. What do we do as followers of Jesus who've been reconciled to him? The Lamb of God who took away our punishment. What do we do? 
We represent him. We speak of him. We reflect his glory and we tell people of his manifesto that they can be reconciled and brought back to him the good news of Jesus. And this is why Paul says in Colossians 4, continue steadfastly in prayer. This is part and parcel of walking in the Spirit, being watchful in it, sensitive with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the Word to declare the mystery of Christ, the gospel, on account of which I am in prison, that I make it make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So we live in this tension between rely upon the Spirit, as Philip did, but preparing and knowing the central story of the Bible that people can be reconciled to God through His Son. What do we do with all this? Well, first we must study and meditate upon the Scriptures, especially as they relate to the Gospel. That means you should read the Bible from, from cover to cover. You should know it well. It means when you come to the seemingly boring parts, that in some way or another, they are still pointing to Jesus. When you read through Leviticus, when you get bogged down perhaps in your yearly Bible reading, which I do commend to you, by the way, in one way or another, be in the Word this year. When you're reading about holiness and how the priests had to look at leprosy spots, I mean, that doesn't even relate to us at all, right? How do you slog through that stuff? Well, it demonstrates that there is separation from God because of impurity and uncleanness. Who can satisfy that? What can satisfy that? Sacrifice. And Jesus was God's ultimate promise of sacrifice that can take away all of our uncleanness and bring us back to God. And that's just one example. As you read the Bible from cover to cover, I promise you that the central story and the central figure is Jesus, and He is our only hope. And as that gets in you, it changes the way that you read the Bible. It's not just a bunch of weird, obscure texts. It's not just a bunch of, of laborious laws. It's not just a bunch of tasteless texts that have no relevance for our life. But they're all preparing us for Jesus and pointing us to Jesus and showing us that He is our only hope. So don't just read the Bible. See it for what it is. Read it through the lens of the gospel and your hearts will burn. Secondly, we must pray to be sensitive to and empowered by the Spirit. This means that you have to prepare. This has to be going on in the background. You've got to be ready when you encounter the person that the Spirit wants you to encounter. You may not even recognize it as such if you are not living sensitively to the Spirit. If you're not walking in the Spirit, so you've got to pray. This might be before you crawl out of bed in the morning if you don't doze back off, and asking God to help you see the divine appointments that He's brought your way. Furthermore, and perhaps even more likely, it's praying throughout the day. God, I'm going to lunch now. He knows that, right? But you're talking to him. God, I'm going to go to my cubicle now. God, I'm going to go get in my car now. Is there somebody that I'm going to encounter with whom I can encounter them with the gospel of Jesus? So we're going to encounter each other, and I want them to encounter Jesus. Is there someone like that? It may not be every day. But I think it's way more likely and way more normal than we take it to be, think it is. There are many more people that we are crossing paths with that God wants us to encounter with the gospel of Jesus than we're taking advantage of. 
I don't say that to chide you. We don't do that here. But I do say it to challenge you. And, and there may well need to be some repentance on all of our part. That we are missing opportunities. That we are not speaking of the glory of our Savior. We talk about this from time to time, but it bears repeating often. For what purpose were we rescued? For what purpose did Jesus free us from the wrath of God? Eternal life, yes. Fellowship with God eternally, yes. But that we might glorify Him and and speak to others of His glory. And we can come into the light and repent of our negligence in this because we are not received by God because of our own righteousness. God does not accept us because we're good evangelists. God accepts us because of the good news of Jesus, but we can come and repent and we can be transformed by His Spirit, so we must pray to be sensitive to and empowered by His Spirit. I remember when I was probably 20 or so, I went to college at a really conservative place in South Carolina, and uh, whenever we went out into town, we had to wear our, our normal sort of school uniform. Now, we didn't really have uniforms, but but sort of metaphorically speaking. In the morning, we had to wear ties. So, you know, like, for six years or whatever, I starched a shirt every morning. So if you're going to, you know, wear a tie, you might as well look good, right? In the afternoons, you could take the tie off and you could wear khakis, but that's about as casual as it got. And even when you went into town to, like, you know, a chicken joint or to a store or whatever, you had to wear your khakis. So wherever we went, and usually we were, like, in twos and threes, people knew where we were from. And we probably looked like a little cult. Well, we weren't that far from, from Clemson University. We were about 45 minutes away. In fact, uh, a number of us used to go down to Clemson on Friday nights in our khakis and in our polos because we looked like a cult and, like, tell people about Jesus and explain the gospel. Well, a couple times we went to a football game. There. I remember one time in particular we went to a game against Florida State, and uh, we were getting ready to go in for the game. And... I, I was, I was learning to walk in the Spirit at this point. And I remember encountering this Florida State fan. And we started talking, and he was super nice, very passionate. Florida State fans are super, super passionate. And we just got talking about various things, football, and, and somehow, you know, God's Spirit allowed me to steer it toward, toward Jesus and toward the gospel. And this guy was really intrigued, and we had a really good conversation. Now, remember, we were like in the rhinestone of the central... Uh, decorative feature of the buckle of the Bible belt. Like, we were in the middle of the Bible belt as much as you could be. He was in the middle of probably, like, Southern Baptist culture, which is where we were. And he listened to me. And we were surrounded by thousands of people. I I think Death Valley, where it comes and plays, holds like 85,000 people. We were surrounded by people. And in in the middle of the throng of people, he took me by the hand, this total stranger, and he says, I want to receive Jesus. And I said, okay. I was a little surprised, obviously. And we prayed, and he seemingly received Jesus. I don't know what happened to him. I should have gotten his number. I should have followed up with him. We didn't have cell phones, of course, back in those days, which makes me seem really old, I guess. Uh, but I don't, I don't know. I don't know what happened. Was that a divine appointment, surprisingly, by the Spirit? That's what Philip's experience was like. It was, it was unexpected. And when Philip was done, he was just gone. So the... Ethiopian eunuch wants to be baptized. Philip does that to, to seal his commitment to Jesus. And then Philip's taken away, and he's preaching the gospel in other places. And the Ethiopian eunuch goes away with joy. I hope that that Florida State fan went away with joy. It means that no matter where we are, no matter who we encounter, that God can work however He wants. He can overcome the darkness of the human heart. He can overcome opposition to the gospel. 
and bring people to himself. It is a miracle that any of us have been transformed by grace. And his miraculous power can transform anyone. This means that whoever you have in your life, whether it's a friend or family member that you think will never come to faith, a mom or a dad or a brother or a sister or a coworker or a boss, the gospel can transform anyone. We're going to find that in our next chapter, in Acts chapter 9, that God can transform anyone. Lastly for today, after we study and meditate, after we learn to be sensitive to and empowered by the Spirit, we have to open our mouths. I love how simply Luke puts this in Acts chapter 8. Philip opened his mouth. He depended upon the Spirit. He spoke what he knew. And what did God do? He gave new birth to this black Gentile eunuch. And we have to believe that the gospel got down into central Sudan and spread out from there. And God kept his promises that his good news brought by his son would be for all peoples everywhere. Because Philip depended upon the Spirit, and opened his mouth. What will God do through your witness or the witness of this church? I hope great things in days to come. Jesus has many people in this city. And by his grace and the power of his Spirit and the witness of his servants, may many, many more come in. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, now, just like you continued to work from heaven through your disciples, We pray that you will continue to work through us. Forgive us, we pray, for our negligence. Forgive us for our cowardice. Forgive us for our boredom. Forgive us for our selfishness. Forgive us for hoarding our resources of time and talent and treasure. And cleanse us from that and then change us, we pray. May we know your word deeply. May we we see how it points to Jesus as the only hope for the world. May we learn to rely upon your spirit and be sensitive toward his promptings. And then when we encounter people at the workplace, in the streets of our neighborhood, at athletic events, at family gatherings, may we open our mouths. Lord Jesus, we are not responsible for whether or not people respond. But we pray in your divine providence through your spirit that you will lead us to the people that are yours, that you will lead us to the people who will respond. And as we rely upon your spirit to know what to say in the moment, as we speak of the hope of the gospel of Jesus, which is throughout the scriptures, that you will bring many more and bring them into this church. We might rejoice in the new birth of many converts and see them grow in the faith. We pray the same thing for our missionaries all around the world, in Africa and Asia, that they will do the same thing, that they will speak the good news of Jesus. You will bring them to the people who will respond and they will believe and more and more all around the world as the gospel spreads, you will receive glory for you deserve this. You are the lamb that was slain to rescue your people and you will be glorified as such for the rest of eternity. So get glory for yourself through more and more converts. Do it through our witness and do it for our joy, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.